Mathematics is all about a mindset shift. Here, math becomes a lens through which we see the world more clearly. Math is a vehicle that takes us to exciting new places. It's a medium through which we can experience life with more freedom and power. Come stand here with me at the edge of math. Let's throw the gates wide open and take a little journey together. I'm Amy Buchanan, your host. Welcome to Mathematics. Welcome to our very first podcast episode. I am so excited to be here with you and share some math experiences together. So let me start by saying this is a podcast about math itself and about our experience learning it and about our experiences sharing it with others, such as teaching. I myself am someone who loves math. I continue to consider myself a student of math. And I make a living teaching math to children and coaching teachers who teach math to children. So my intention is for the things that I talk about to appeal to anyone who finds themselves in any of those categories. But honestly, above all, I intend for this podcast to appeal to all of us as humans. Math is a significant human endeavor. It's one that touches all of our lives in one way or another. And I don't want anyone to feel alienated or threatened by it. I want math to make us feel powerful. I want it to make us feel like the entire universe is at our feet and nothing can stop us from exploring it and understanding it better. I want to invite you to enjoy math, not only for its practical utility, but also and simply because it is freaking amazing. And if you don't yet find math to be freaking amazing, stick around and let me see if I can shift the needle for you on that a little bit. My goal is to post new episodes regularly, hopefully weekly, until I run out of things to say about math. So in other words, for a really long time. I was going to try to get away with saying forever, but a lot of what this episode is about is distinguishing really, really large quantities from infinite ones. So no, I won't be doing this podcast for an infinite amount of time, but I do hope that it will be for a rather large quantity of time. I can tell you that I've been brainstorming things to talk about, and there is definitely no end in sight. So sometimes on this podcast, I'll be discussing topics that are a little closer to the classroom. So things like standards we're teaching and the math that students are typically learning in that kindergarten to 12th grade span. But sometimes I'm going to branch out of that, including today on our first episode, because there can be a lot of power and freedom in getting out of our comfort zone. We're going to be working on something that Peter Lilliadal might call a non-curricular task. That's the idea, supported by extensive research on Lilliadal's part, that if you want to get a group of students thinking about the math curriculum they need to learn, you start with a non-curricular task, something that gets us out of the box. So that time that we spend on a non-curricular task opens students' minds and switches their brains out of that passive receptor mode and into actual thinking mode. So are you ready to shift into thinking mode and feel a little of that power and freedom? Let's get started. 
Today's topic seems so fundamental that I think we often just take it for granted. It's something that unless you're a teacher of preschoolers or kindergartners maybe, you might not have spent much time considering it. And that topic is counting. But we are going to take counting to a place you may never have taken it or even considered that it could be taken. And that is to infinity and beyond. In pop culture, that phrase comes from Disney's animated Toy Story movies. It's something that the character Buzz Lightyear is always saying. And when we hear it, to infinity and beyond, it sounds like some kind of cute hyperbole, right? As in, okay, Buzz, if we go to infinity, how can we then go beyond infinity? That's the joke. You can't, right? Because infinity is infinite. You can't go beyond infinity. Or can you? Hold on for the plot twist, because there is a quite literal sense in which that phrase applies. We're going to dedicate this episode to an amazing mathematician, Georg Cantor. Cantor is known as the father of set theory. He's the originator of the ideas that we'll be exploring today with regard to infinity. Before we get into that, though, I wanted to pique your interest by giving you a sampling of general quotes from him. So take a listen and see what you think. Here's the first one. Great innovation only happens when people aren't afraid to do things differently. Aren't afraid to do things differently. Have you ever been afraid to do things differently? I know I have. Change is hard. Whether it's fear or whatever else is keeping us from doing things differently and keeping us stuck doing the same old things. Here's the thing. If we don't change, we can't possibly get better. This doesn't mean that every single time we try to do something different, it will be an improvement. What's that saying about success? Success is just you standing on top of a mountain of previous failures. But it is logically true that if we don't try something different, we will never even have the chance to improve and do greater things. So I encourage you to open your mind to trying something different. What is it you've been afraid to try? I was a little afraid to put all this energy into a podcast, basically just about math and how much I love it, since it is a little different from any other podcast that I found anyway. But now that I've gotten the ball rolling, I've realized that whether people listen or not, this is something that is broadening my own horizons and helping me to learn new things. So thank you, Cantor, for the reminder that whether in math or in life or in some way in which those intersect, let's try doing something different. I'm on board, and I hope you are too. This next quote is good for every human. But if you are a math teacher who is working on following best practices by providing your students with experiences that allow them to build their own mathematical understanding, you might notice that it is specifically applicable to that. And if you are any person who is open to learning math, which I hope is everyone, I want to invite you to think about it. This advice from Georg Cantor, he says, Don't always blindly follow guidance and step-by-step instructions. You might run into something interesting. (music) 
what if that were the motto that we were able to give to every math teacher, first of all, and then to every student? Don't always blindly follow guidance and step-by-step instructions. How many times do our students sit and wait to be told what to do? What if, as teachers, we gained the confidence to encourage them in this freedom to explore, to set up our lessons as experience that facilitated that exploration, to set aside the step-by-step instructions and allow them to come to their own conclusions based on their own experiences and their own explorations. This is my passion as a math teacher. It's to deepen our own connections and understanding of the content of math so that we and our students can run into interesting things together. And I'll be coming back to this quote for sure for as long as this podcast lasts. Okay, one more quote for now. This is a quote that encapsulates the entire message and purpose of this podcast. And it goes like this. The essence of mathematics is in its freedom. Freedom. Has your experience of math been one of increasing freedom? If so, that is awesome. And you have found your people. And if not, that is okay. It's what you're here for. I'm so, so glad you're here because this can be your experience of math. Yes, you. You are our people too. You know that saying about how do you get a bikini body? You take a bikini and you put it on your body. Boom, now you have a bikini body. Okay, so let's apply that. How do you become a math person? You do some math. Presto, instant math person. It's that simple. Not to say that it's easy. Just like everything else worthwhile, learning math is hard work. But it is possible and it is accessible to everyone. Yes, that means you. And if you're a teacher, yes, that means your students. And if you're a parent, yes, that means your children. Everyone can access and learn as much math as they want to. You'll find these quotes and more in the show notes. And they are just so good. I have to say that if I had never heard of Georg Cantor, but I knew that he had written these things that I just shared with you, I would immediately want to go and study everything about his life. And if you share that feeling, then you're in luck because What we're going to be doing here today is really just a little bit of an introduction to his life work. So we're about to jump in and explore counting, but first I want to tell you about how you can support the podcast. You can rate it and leave a review from wherever you're listening. You can visit our website where there are videos and other things for you to explore connected with each episode. And in addition to that, you can sign up for our monthly membership, which comes with some other experiences and opportunities. So be sure to check all of that out at mathematics.com. That's M-A-T-H-E-M-A-T-I-X-E-D.com. When children are very young and just beginning to speak, one of the first things they learn is a sequence of numbers. 
if they are learning to speak English, that sequence sounds like one, two, three, four, etc. And once they've learned those words, maybe up to 10, we say things like they can count to 10 in the same way we might say they can say their ABCs. At that point, they have memorized a particular sequence of syllables, which is a wonderful and important thing, but by itself, it's not quite counting. It's sort of like this. Learning to say the alphabet means that you know the names of the letters by heart, but it does not necessarily mean that you understand the sounds of those letters and how to put them together to read yet. But knowing the alphabet does give you one of the tools you will use when you go on to the task of learning to read. So in a similar way, memorizing the numbers gives a young child the tools with which they will count. However, knowing the numbers does not necessarily mean that the mathematical activity of counting is going on yet, because the hallmark of counting is something called one-to-one correspondence. One-to-one correspondence encompasses a couple of things. Let's say we are going to count a set of objects. We could call those objects members of the set. In terms of the action of counting, this means that a person learning to count will first of all need to be able to point to one object and say one number, and then point to the next object and say the next number, and so on, with each object corresponding to exactly one number in that sequence. If you've ever seen a child at the beginning stages of learning to count, they might not yet do this. They might get the idea that they need to gesture with their pointer finger in the direction of the objects, but they might be bouncing their finger along at a completely different pace than they are rattling the numbers off. And even when they do start to understand, they might not be very proficient at it. They might say the numbers a little too quickly in their zeal to show that they know the numbers. If you've ever tried to direct a group of, well, really a group of any age to count, and you're trying to go at a certain pace through the objects, but the recitation of the numbers sort of takes on a life of its own and the pace accelerates, well, that group has lost sight of the fact that in order to be counting, you have to be using one-to-one correspondence. It's really important to note that each number goes with one item as we go. And then it's especially important to notice that not only do we need to be able to say those numbers in a way that matches them with the objects, we need to realize that as we land on each number, that number identifies not just that individual object, but the quantity of objects that we've counted so far. And then, As we land on that final number, then we need to retain that number in our minds as being the total amount of objects or members of that set. And that's another skill to identify the size of that set. And the mathematical word for that is cardinality. Now I want you to notice I'm starting to use Cantor's set theory language. I've referred to a set of objects and those objects are members of the set and we've used the word cardinality to describe the size of that set. It's the word which answers the question, how many? And just as a side note, these are distinct stages of learning. 
Even when children get the idea that they need to say one number with one object, they might be able to land on the correct number at the end every time, but yet not quite realize that they have now determined the cardinality of that set. They have now determined the answer to the question, how many members does this set have? For example, someone might count a set with five members, but later when asked how many there are in that same set of objects, they might need to count again. Or when another set of objects is going to be added to the original set, instead of starting at five and then counting on from there, they might need to go back and count everything again. But ultimately we develop both of these concepts for counting, the idea of matching a number to an object and then cardinality, which is that we are determining with each number how many objects we have counted thus far. So I mentioned all of that about counting using the number words, that's one, two, three, etc., because I wanted to lay a foundation, but I'm actually going to back up a little bit. The beauty of one-to-one -one correspondence is that we don't even need the names of the numbers in order to use one-to-one -one correspondence. For example, we don't need the names of numbers in order to compare the cardinalities of two sets. We can just use one-to-one -one correspondence directly. So for example, let's say there are two piles of jelly beans. There's my jelly beans and your jelly beans. And we want to compare to see who has more jelly beans. We could take one jelly bean from my pile and match it with one jelly bean from your pile and then another jelly bean from my pile and match it with a jelly bean from your pile. So if you can picture in your head, we're keeping the piles distinct, maybe mine are on the left and yours are on the right, but we're pairing them up one to one. And we continue doing so until we reach a point at which either my pile has jelly beans left in it and yours doesn't, in which case we would know that my pile has more jelly beans and your pile has fewer or vice versa. Or if they match up perfectly, then we know that they have the same amount of jelly beans. And so we would say that they have the same cardinality. And we could do that even if we didn't have a number word for that precise amount. Or it doesn't have to be two piles of matching items. What if we have students and sack lunches and we want to give one sack lunch to each student? We could just match them up. Here's the line of students and here's a box full of sack lunches. And as the students come through the line, I'm going to hand each one of them one sack lunch. If we end up with students remaining with no sack lunches to give them, then we have a situation in which there were more students and fewer sack lunches. Now, the beauty of having the abstract concept of number to identify cardinality is that we could have made that determination a little more easily. We could have done it ahead of time. So that if we knew that we had 200 students and 195 sack lunches, we could realize that we are a little bit short on lunches and we can even determine by how many, by finding that difference of five. But in any case, we can see how one-to-one -one correspondence can be used directly with sets of objects or with the members within each set. Now, at this point, we're actually going to move away from sets of physical items. And instead, we're going to compare lists or sets of numbers themselves. So in a way, instead of the numbers being the tools with which we count some kind of objects, 
we're going to consider the numbers themselves as the objects or the members, and we're going to consider the cardinality of the sets of numbers. Sort of like when we matched up jelly beans to jelly beans or students to sack lunches. Now we're going to match up numbers to numbers. For example, let's compare the cardinality of the set that includes the first 10 natural numbers. Now natural numbers is the formal way of referring to what we might also call counting numbers. So that's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. And then let's compare that to the cardinality of the set of numbers from 11 to 20. So that's 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, and 20. If we were to make two lists of these numbers in, say, a vertical table, the column on the left would have the numbers 1 through 10, and the column on the right next to it would have the numbers 11 through 20. We could match across the columns, and the 1 would go with the 11, and the 2 would go with the 12, and you can see in your mind, or you could write it down, that when we get to the 10 in the first column on the left, we will be matching that with the 20 at the bottom of the second column on the right, and we would see that they match up perfectly. So these sets are equal in magnitude, so they have the same cardinality. Now, we may have been able to see offhand that the cardinality of each set was 10 and just said they each have 10, same cardinality. But we didn't need to know that ahead of time, and we didn't need to use the number 10 to prove to ourselves that the cardinality was the same. We can just use one-to-one -one correspondence. So now, let's compare another two sets of numbers. Let's start again with the numbers from 1 to 10. That's our first set. And let's compare that with the set of the even numbers that fall between 1 and 10. So we're going to remove the odds, and we're just going to leave 2, 4, 6, 8, and 10. And that forms our second set. And again, you can imagine in your head, or you can write it down, that if we wanted to compare these two lists, on the left we would have the numbers 1 through 10, and on the right we would have 2, 4, 6, 8, 10. And so we would match the 1 on the left with the 2 on the right, and the 2 on the left with the 4 on the right, and the 3 with the 6, and the 4 with the 8, and the 5 with the 10, and then we would realize that we still have some numbers left in our first set, but we have run out of even numbers in our second set on the right. So we can say with certainty that the set of natural numbers from 1 to 10 has a greater magnitude or cardinality than the set of the even numbers that we pulled out of our first set. In fact, because of the nature of even numbers, where precisely every other natural number is even, we might realize that if we pull the even numbers out of any consecutive set of natural numbers, there will be about half as many, give or take, depending on where you start and end with your stretch of your natural numbers. But the idea that we know for sure is that if we take a stretch of natural numbers and remove the odds and leave in the evens, we're going to have fewer numbers in that second set because we've taken some of the numbers out.
more generally, it seems self-evident that if we start with a set of numbers and we remove some of the members of that set, that we would then have a set that is smaller. One might be tempted to think that this is always the case. I mean, this jibes with our sense of experience in our physical reality, right? Even if the set of numbers was very, very large to begin with, say the natural numbers from one to a billion, we can extend in our minds this process of removing all the odd numbers and then having just the even numbers left. It's still a very large amount of numbers, half a billion to be exact. But in any case, it would be a smaller amount than what we started with. So far, so good. Up to now, we have been considering the cardinality of a set of numbers with a starting and an ending point. We can call that a finite set. Now let's make a bit of a leap. Let's consider the cardinality of the set of all natural numbers. Thinking about that for a minute, that would be one, two, three, four, and continuing on adding one at a time with no end. There's no reason to ever end. No matter how high we go, we can always add one more and get another number. There is no limit. Now note that in the real world, we would be limited. If we were counting out loud, we'd be limited by how much time we had until we got tired of it. Or if we were trying to record each number individually in some way that takes up physical space, we would be limited by how much space we had to record the numbers. Well, ultimately, we'd be limited by the actual size of the universe, which, while very large, physicists tell us is finite. Even if one atom corresponded with one number, there are still a finite number of atoms in the universe, and yet we can still imagine that there are more numbers after that. And that's the thing that to me is one of the most spectacular features of mathematics, is that it is utterly unfettered by physical constraints of space and time. I mean, so let me qualify. Math is intimately connected to the realities of space and time, including its physical constraints. And math is very useful in exploring the space and time in which we live. And in fact, it's really important in math education that we do offer grounded physical experiences like manipulatives for students to touch and play with or body movements to make connections with the real world. And all of that will ground our understanding about number. And yet... Mathematics also transcends those constraints in some pretty amazing ways, ways that even young children can grasp. Even a young child can conceive of a universe filled with these tiny particles called atoms, and that there is a very, very, very large number of them. And yet the instant we conceive of that amount, we can imagine adding one more. Or we could imagine doubling that amount. Or we could scale it up by many orders of magnitude and we can imagine all of the numbers in between and still there is no end to how high we could count. What's maybe a little harder to grasp is the cardinality of this set, that it isn't something that we arrive at. It's not a number 
in the sense that we can arrive at it and name it in the conventional way, say in our decimal system of continuing to shift our digits to larger and larger slots of place value. But it is an idea, this going on forever, that we can conceive of what if those numbers did go on forever, and yet we still want to talk about how many of those numbers there are. And we do have a word for this idea, and that word is infinity. So we're going to be doing a little bit of a thought experiment with some infinite sets. Let's start with those natural or counting numbers that we talked about a minute ago. For the second set, let's go ahead and take a portion of our natural numbers away. So like before, let's remove the odd numbers and leave just the even numbers. So now we have two sets. We have the set of natural counting numbers, and then we have the set of the positive even numbers, two, four, six, eight, 10, and so on. And now let's apply what we learned about comparing the cardinalities of two sets. We're going to put these two sets in one-to-one -one correspondence with each other so that we can compare and see if there's any leftovers on one side so we can identify which set is bigger. Okay, so let's go ahead and pretend that we're making two columns in a chart. On the left, we have our natural numbers. That's one, two, three, four, five, and so on and so forth, imagining it going on forever. And then on the right, we have our even numbers, the positive even numbers, two, four, six, eight, 10, and so on and so forth. So the one in our natural number set on the left corresponds with the two in our even number set on the right. And the two on the left corresponds with the four on the right, and the three with the six, and the four with the eight, and so on. And when are we going to run out of even numbers to pair with the natural numbers? Huh. Will the natural numbers run out first, since they're always like behind or smaller? Or will the even numbers eventually run out because they're getting so far ahead? Because wait a minute, no matter how far we go on the natural number side, let's say we get to 10 billion, we have a corresponding even number that goes with it. It's 20 billion. So while our intuition wants to tell us that there are half as many even numbers as there are natural numbers, what we have just discovered using our concept of one-to-one -one correspondence is that there are exactly as many even numbers as there are natural numbers. How can this be? Well, we just demonstrated it using our most basic counting idea, one-to-one -one correspondence. Does it matter? that the even numbers are increasing faster so that they're going to continue to get, quote, ahead? Well, ahead isn't really a concept that applies here because we won't run out on either list. There is no upper limit. As long as we have a way to show that for every counting number, no matter how high they go, there can be mapped, by definition, exactly one corresponding even number, we have shown that the cardinality of both sets is the same. This is a part of the paradoxical nature of infinity. In fact, the very definition of an infinite set 
is based on this weird fact that it is possible to take some members, even an infinite amount of members, out of our set. In this case, our original set was the natural numbers and we removed the odd numbers. And yet, we still had a set left over that had the same amount of members in it as there were in the set that we started with. To get a little tiny bit more formal about that language, let's define something called a proper subset. Okay, so a subset is when we make a new set that can only contain members from our original set. We might only take one of the items or some of the items, or all of the items or none of the items, and all of those would be considered subsets of our original set. So let's do a little rabbit trail and talk about a set containing three members, the numbers one, two, and three. Let's go through and determine all of the subsets of a set with three members. We could have the set containing one. We could have the set containing two. We could have a set containing three. We could have a set containing one and two. We could have a set containing two and three. We could have a set containing one and three. There is then also a set that contains no items at all. That counts, and it's called the null set. And we could have the set containing one, two, and three, all of the items from our original set. And that's also a subset. Notice in that last case, we kept everything in. So all of those are ways of creating subsets from a set that originally contained the members one, two, and three. In fact, there's a tidy little formula that allows us to determine how many subsets there will be, and it involves taking two and raising it to the power of the number of items in our set. If you were keeping track as we went along, you'll notice that we found eight subsets of our set containing three members, and we could calculate that number by taking two and raising it to the power of three, meaning two times two times two, which is eight. So going back to our original definition of subset, I wanted to refine that a little bit because there is also something called a proper subset. And all that means is that you can't count the set that had all of the items from the original set. So there are two to the third power minus one or seven proper subsets. So far today, we've talked about starting with a set of counting numbers and then removing some of the items, the odds. When we do that, we've created what's called a proper subset. When we did it with finite numbers, the numbers from one to 10, we took away the odds and we had just two, four, six, eight, and 10 left. That's a proper subset of the numbers from one to 10. And as we saw, the cardinality of our new set of our proper subset was smaller, which is intuitive to us. We had to take something away, now we have a smaller set. But in the case where we did it with infinite sets, when we took the infinite set containing all the natural numbers, and then we created a proper subset by removing the odds, and then still showed that we were able to put our two sets in one-to-one -one correspondence with each other, that, leads us to our formal definition of an infinite set. An infinite set is a set which can be put into one-to-one -one correspondence with a proper subset of itself.
I sometimes like to think about the way that infinity is conceived in the popular imagination, and I find it interesting that it seems more often to be conceived inaccurately as just a very, very large number. For example, there's this old song that we used to sing at summer camp when I was a kid, which I love the song, don't get me wrong. It's a really beautiful ballad, and it's called Land of Odin. And it talks about a huge mountain, which is apparently actually a cube that is 1,000 miles in each dimension. Or maybe it's like a pyramid with a square base that's 1,000 miles in each, the length and width, and then 1,000 miles for the height. In any case, you get the idea that it's a very large mountain. And then as the song goes along, every million years, a bird comes to sharpen its beak on the mountain presumably only reducing the size of the mountain by a few specks of dust, right? And then the bird flies away, not to return for another million years. And the song ends by saying that once the mountain is gone, that would only be like a day of eternity. To me, while this is obviously doing a fantastically beautiful and poetic job, of describing a really, really, really big number, it still implies a finiteness. It implies that all of that stuff can happen and that would be like only a day, but still there's this sense of if I could have the bird grind down another mountain, that would be another day and another mountain and it would still take so long, but eventually maybe we would arrive at infinity somehow. By juxtaposing that long, long day to eternity, it seems to be implying that eternity is made up of a fixed amount of these very long days. And I don't see this as crossing that chasm from really, really large number to the actual concept of infinity. Interestingly enough, there's another song. It's like the third verse, I think, of that classic old hymn, which even if you're not a religious person, you've probably heard of. It's called Amazing Grace. And this isn't quite as ethereal in its poetry, but it actually does a more mathematically accurate job of describing infinity. Or in this context, eternity, which is just an infinite amount of time. And the verse goes like this. It says, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing his praise than when we've first begun. So this song only mentions a quantity of a measly 10,000 years, but it does hit straight at the heart of the actual nature of infinity or eternity, which is that even if some amount of time is taken away from it, the total amount still remains the same. That touches on that definition of taking a proper subset of what you started with and having it be the same size. That is an infinite amount of time. So maybe some inferior poetry, but better math. <laughs> I don't know. Can you think of any references to infinity and how they relate to what we've talked about? Let me know. I'd love to hear about it. But I did promise we'd come back to Buzz Lightyear's catchphrase, particularly that and beyond part. So here goes. Now that we've found a way to conceive of the concept of infinity, that it's not just a really big number, but instead it is the magnitude or cardinality of a set, which can have some of itself removed and yet still be the same size. 
Is this the end of the story? Can all infinite sets be placed in one-to-one correspondence with each other? It sort of seems intuitive at this point to think so, right? Because they all go on forever, so just line things up, match them up, no end in sight. Well, we've talked about the set of natural numbers and some of its subsets. What about sets which the natural numbers are a subset of? So sets that contain more numbers than just the natural numbers. What about, for example, the integers? That would include zero and then the negative counterparts of the positive counting numbers in increments of one going down, negative one, negative two, negative three, and so on. That goes to infinity in both directions, right? What about rational numbers? That would include fractions where your numerator and denominator are integers. What about numbers that are not rational? Can all of these infinite sets be placed into one-to-one correspondence with the natural or counting numbers? Well, some of them can, but spoiler alert, pause here if you don't want to hear the answer, but also I guess I kind of already alluded to this all along. The answer is no, not all infinite sets can be put into one-to-one correspondence with each other. There are actually infinite sets with cardinalities greater than the set of natural numbers. So the cardinality of the infinity that we've been discussing is called a countable infinity, but there are also uncountable infinities. And notice I said plural, uncountable infinities, because yes, there is in fact more than one magnitude or cardinality of infinity. In fact, there is an infinite regression of infinities of different cardinalities. And I just cannot get over how fun this is to think about. But there is a lot more detail to go into. So if you're interested in doing a deeper dive into this particular subject, please know that it is quite accessible. If you have listened and followed this far, there is a set of numbers, everyday understandable numbers, that can be shown to not correspond one-to-one with those natural numbers. But honestly, it's a little bit easier to show in written form or on a video. Plus, what would a good math story be without a cliffhanger? So if you would like to dig deeper into this, you could Google Georg Cantor or set theory or infinity and find some resources. Or if you want to do a deeper dive together with me, you can go to our website, mathematics.com so that together we can uncover a set of numbers that actually quite literally does go beyond the magnitude of the infinity that we've been discussing so far. So we will be back here next week. And next week will be more of a standard curricular topic, I guess you could say. In fact, we're going to be discussing addition. I will be sharing with you two frames of reference or mental structures for thinking about additive reasoning. And I'm going to introduce you to the sciency words I use to describe what's going on in my own head when I'm thinking about addition in those two distinct ways. If you've ever thought that adding was just so simple and basic and obvious, hold on to your hats because we are going to get deep into it next week. Thanks again so much for being here with me and thinking along. 
I'm hoping this episode brought a little more freedom and power into your experience of math, because that's what this podcast is all about. This first episode of the Mathematics Podcast has been brought to you by the number one, which is the multiplicative identity, because when you multiply any number by one, since you have one of that number, that number retains its identity or stays the same and which additively by increments is the builder of all the natural or counting numbers that we've been discussing today. And this episode has also been brought to you by Mathematics.com, where we envision a world with freedom and power for everyone through understanding math. That's M-A-T-H-E-M-A-T-I-X-E-D.com.